The Higher Side Chats doesn't start with underwear ads or guilt-tripping donation pleas, nor would I ever commit the cardinal sin of podcasting and interrupt the flow mid-show to show you an unrelated sponsor. But the free first-hour episodes do have to start with a little PSA before we get into it to ever so quickly remind slash inform listeners both old slash new that you're about to get into what I'm sure is a great first hour of a high-level interview, but that means you're missing half the show. If you like what we do around here, get yourself a THC Plus membership and listen to the full two-hour interviews as they were really designed to be and as I know you would enjoy them most. Give a little and actually get a little more in return of the thing you're actually engaging with. Five episodes every month, plus forum access, community comments, downloads to all the closing cover songs, a plus show RSS feed to use with any private RSS feed supported app, and the occasional joint session bonus shows, which include the messages you might leave me about your own theories, experiences, or otherworldly encounters at thehiresidechats.com slash voicemail. If you're not quite sure, if you just want to feel us out, or if you're only here for this particular episode, no worries. New first-time subscribers get a seven-day free trial when you sign up at thehiresidechats.com. Cancel anytime. Try it out, because it's so important to feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go. And with that said, let's get on with it already, huh? In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Well, this is the way, Higher Side Chatters. Doing what we do from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and if you take even the slightest step off the path laid by the contrived conventional narratives of history... Drilled into us through state-sponsored schooling and Pavlovian training over the most important developmental years of our youth, you'll find that there are major flaws in the experts' history, as well as echoes of advanced civilization and epic weirdness from all corners of this island Earth. A network of pyramids that is yet to be explained, megalithic structures with unique energetic qualities, cosmic alignments, and archaeoacoustic resonance, Complex cosmologies of the indigenous cultures that haven't been systematically eliminated or co-opted. Mysterious mounds, lost cities, missing islands, vast underground complexes. Stories of metaphysical manifestations, civilizing trickster beings and androgynous hybrid fish gods. Shamanic games of telephone with the spirit world and thousands of stories of giant skeletons with even more myths and legends that speak to a time when they walked among us and maybe even engineered us. It's as if official history and the experts of academia do more concealing than revealing these days, and that's why we're lucky to have the powerful one-two punch of truth in today's guests Hugh Newman and Jim Vieira. They are the best-selling authors of Giants on Record, America's Hidden History, Secrets in the Mounds, and the Smithsonian Files from 2015, and stars of History Channel's Search for the Lost Giants and Ancient Aliens. Now they're out with a new book, The Giants of Stonehenge and Ancient Britain, which is actually the first book to document the reality of giants in the British Isles. 
Together they investigate these claims of giants and take a deep dive into obscure newspaper accounts, antiquarian diaries, archaeological reports, local history records, newly translated ancient texts, academic papers, new scientific reports, and written evidence from hundreds of sources going back over a 4,000 year period to uncover the truth. Over 250 accounts of the remains of giant human skeletons ranging from 7 feet all the way to 21 feet have been found in the archaeological and historical record, often measured and commented on by famous scientists, scholars, and writers at the time, yet somehow never acknowledged by the modern-day experts and institutions, but hey, their loss is our gain. So let's get into it, one from the old England and one from the new, the megalithomaniac, supreme and giant reality revealers, Hugh and Jim, Jim and Hugh, welcome to the higher side. Thanks a lot, Greg. Hey, welcome. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate it. Yes, I am psyched for this. So Hugh, you're from Glastonbury, England, and Jim, you're from Asheville, Massachusetts. The accents certainly will help the audience tell you apart on an audio-only show, and big thanks to Dr. Greg Little for helping us find each other, because I really loved this book. It's very rapid-fire, account after account, from nearly every area of the British Isles. And you clip a lot of these stories right out of the newspaper archives, which I myself have had many late nights combing through, usually searching for terms like Inner Earth or Cave City. But there's no shortage of strangeness when people really want to look for it, is there? That's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the amount of documents myself and Jim have gone through over the years is pretty insane. We've even been in libraries going through microfilm, you know, finding these old diaries and things like this. And Jim discovered this scrapbook from a very interesting scholar in New England. So, yes, it's amazing what you find when you start looking. Yes. And so I know you both have a wide range of interests that certainly overlap with ours here. Hugh, to start with you, you're the man behind megalithomania.co.uk, a really great website and an amazing conference that I hope to go to someday. You were also an author on a book that came out last year called Geomancy, Earth Grids, Ley Lines, Feng Shui, Divination, Dowsing, and Dragons. Very provocative, but talk to us a bit more about your overall interests in strange stuff and where giants fit into it all. Well, yeah, fundamentally. I'm fascinated by the megalithic sites. That's my kind of real kind of intense passion, trying to understand what the ancients were up to. Myself and John Martin and Gareth Mills founded Megalithomania back in 2005, did our first conference the following year. And one of our big inspirations is the author and scholar John Michel, who wrote the classic book, The View Over Atlantis. He wrote the book called Megalithomania as well back in the 1980s. And he was a big influence and He's really into the earth mysteries and trying to understand like the invisible aspects of these ancient sites. So looking at the archaeoastronomy, the earth energies, the ley lines that connect them all up, the archaeoacoustics and things like this. And so these kind of themes really get me. And also obviously the geomancy and trying to understand how the ancients were able to manipulate these energies for higher states of consciousness, but also for fertility, enhancing farming and agriculture and things like this. And it's what John Michel called the enchantment of the landscape. And so this is kind of uh, what's always fascinated me. And it surprised me that getting into the giant stories, when I started researching that with Jim a few years ago, like, well, probably 10 years ago now, that more and more we looked into, it, especially in Britain, 
this geomantic aspect, these ley lines, these kind of divination and all these elements are all part of the giants. They're part of the giant mythos that kind of blankets the whole country here. So it's, it's kind of like coming full circle for me from my research. Years ago, I was, I was studying earth energies and crop circles and things like this, going to the megaliths did that for years and it's come back to all these more esoteric subjects with these giants so it all fits together somehow <laughs> i love it and jim you're a stonemason and writer who has compiled so many news articles and academic reports on giants you had a blog called the daily giant and would post about one every day very impressive clearly no shortage of information to present but i also understand you're very interested in the metaphysical and you've had Maybe hundreds of ayahuasca ceremonies in the Amazon. I heard you say that. I'm not sure how serious you are being, but I am curious how this metaphysical and spiritual interest overlaps with the very real reality of giants in the ancient past. How strong is that overlap? Might some of them have had a metaphysical origin to begin with? I'll say that I started in an early age in my teenage years reading all the non-dualistic teachers like Lao Tzu, the Upanishads, the Advaita Vedanta. And I didn't even really know I, I was doing it. I was just compelled to do it. I was drawn to the material. And I started getting to the work of Edgar Cayce, the Christian mystic who would go into like a trance-like state and talk about mostly health-related matters. But he also got into ideas of Atlantis and giants and little people and the metaphysical underpinnings of reality. So I've come from that level of awareness or research for a long time. And for me, it was always the indigenous traditions around the world and religious documents that caught my attention. How can all these sources be talking about such a different history, a lost world, if you will? And they're all remarkably similar and the ideas are ubiquitous. And that's what's drawn my attention. I don't know if I've done hundreds of ayahuasca ceremonies. I'd say dozens. I might have <laughs> misspoke, but I spent lots of time with wisdom keepers and lots of time exploring the nature of reality with spiritual teachers and masters as well around the world. So that's always, you know, drawn me in. And as Hugh was saying, it's like the giant story is one of wisdom keepers and masters, not just the malevolent stories you hear in the Bible. There's kind of two stories, like one of these great civilizers who help humanity. And another side of the story is kind of the dark and malevolent side of cannibalistic giants that you hear from the Bible and Native American legends. And, you know, a tip of the hat to Greg Little as well, who studies a lot of the Casey material. He got me interested with his books. And, you know, it's all coalesced for me. And I've learned a lot throughout the years of dealing with academics and skeptics dealing with alternative people and, and trying to be objective about controversial subjects. Mm. Well, cheers to that. It seems like the three of us have a lot of overlapping interests and hey, dozens of Amazonian ayahuasca sessions is impressive enough. But so you have this previous book about giants in North America, and that's certainly where we hear about them most often. At least that's where I hear about them most often. Of course, we also hear plenty about megalithic sites and stone circles in the British Isles. But talk to us about why this book is so unique. What have you guys brought out that hasn't really been explored previously in the uh, alternative realm? I mean, if you're talking about the new book, Giants of Stonehenge in Ancient Britain, 
that really was, you know, we actually in our first book, Giants on Record, we did actually look a little bit at Britain and we, we published a couple of accounts in there. And we were going to do, you know, after we'd done our book on America, we, you know, there's so many accounts. I mean, Jim collected a majority of them. But we had Ross Hamilton, we had Micah Ewers collecting them. I found a few as well. And we ended up having, you know, over a thousand. I think there's something like 1,500 have now been discovered so far since you know the last couple of years last count but in britain we didn't really think there'd be that many accounts but we started looking we were going to do a book on the worldwide culture of giants and go look at each country or each you know part of the world individually we started on britain as the first chapter and it just grew and grew and we kept finding all these old documents there's this brilliant book called the giants of wales by chris grooms we found this book from the 1500s we checked through all these old documents some translated welsh texts and things like this and the archives of ireland and we were just like stunned because not only have you got the accounts of the skeletons and the bones and things that were recorded as being on display you've also got this remarkable lost mythos that covered the whole all four countries of the british isles and not many people actually know about many of these creation stories these foundation myths of britain all of them are related to giants this is what's so odd and this is almost known as the land of the giants you know in prehistoric times and it was just part of the culture as part of the kind of way of thinking back then and clearly you know one of the things that makes this unique as you asked is the fact that not only have we found loads of accounts that no one's ever documented before but we found stories associated with the giants you know linked at the same places where the skeletons are being found you know this is what's really odd you get these really strong stories are being remembered passed down from generation to generation they all appear to be actually where skeletons have been found we've got multiple examples like st michael's mount we found skeletons near stonehenge reports of them there's you know the story of the giant idris on Cadet idris in wales and at the base of there they found two over seven foot skeletons with these hazel dowsing rods in the burial which is again linking to this geomantic aspect so yeah i mean we've documented and published stuff that's never been put out there before in, in a popular kind of format of a book and so yeah so there's a lot of information i think people kind of look at the cover they think it's like uh they're not sure what to expect and i think it's quite surprising how deep we've gone into the research for this one mm, nice and Jim, let me ask you this. So are there qualities or common details that vary between North American stories and those of the British Isles? How would you compare and contrast them? Are they different in any significant ways? Yeah, one thing that caught my attention is you find similar anatomic anomalies. There are so many accounts of jawbones fitting over the face of the finder, which indicates a massive skeleton. There were so many of those in the in the United States from coast to coast. It was really compelling. And what we found out was there was a series of anthropologists in the 1940s and 50s in the United States, Webb and Snow from the University of Kentucky, Dr. Don Dragoo from the Carnegie Section of Man, head of anthropology, that found over seven-foot skeletons with this massive and robust physical makeup. And the jaw bones were so thick and large, they called it the Adena jaw. And the Adena was one of the first mound-building cultures in the United States, about 1008 BC, that built a lot of the mounds you see in the Ohio River Valley. And 
their royal class was extremely large, well over seven foot tall for the males, well over six foot tall for the females. And they had massive jawbones that were verified by you know, modern day anthropologists. So you find the same story in the British Isles. You find jawbones over the faces, well-proportioned, massive bone structure. You also find, well, I'll say to contrast, in the United States, you, you know, because a lot of people say, dismiss these stories as sensationalist hoaxes or headlines or misidentified Macedon remains. But that just really isn't true. If you look at the evidence, what you find is a lot of the descriptions are, say, in the United States, Native American burials with Native American burial patterns with Native American artifacts. So these aren't Mastodon bones. These are human burials. In the British Isles, you have Neolithic burials, you have stone tombs, but you also have a lot of the same kind of accounts where railroad workers are unearthing an ancient burial ground, or they're digging a well and they encounter this, or they dig into a burial mound and they find absolutely massive skeletons, just like in the United States. And the mythology amongst the Native Americans is similar to the mythology that you find in the British Isles of the indigenous people. And what I found fascinating, you know, for Hugh and I, this wasn't just like, not that we were going in blind, but it was a revelation in itself, all the things we've uncovered. And one of the big things is, is that all the biblical connections, the incubi and the watchers and the shining ones and all these mysterious beings that you find in the Bible lands show up in the British Isles as well. And there's connections with the early waves of migration, Noah's son and Albina and Albion and connections to the Holy Lands in Greece. It's a really fascinating migratory story. And, you know, at the end of the day, just a kind of a mundane approach doesn't do the story justice. There's clearly another supernatural aspect to it as well. And that's why I think people find this material interesting because they intuitively know there's a broader story of our past, one that's rooted in mythology and lost worlds and high metaphysical teachings. So I am not anti-science by any means. I just feel like science operates like an atheistic cult where it doesn't give enough weight to the metaphysical realms and the mythological stories in indigenous oral traditions. Hugh and I approach our research like academics, but I think the difference is we're open to those ideas. Oral traditions carry weight for us. Religious documents carry weight, especially oral traditions because there's a limited amount of information you can transmit orally, so it won't be erroneous. It has to be very important to the people. And what are they transmitting? Ideas of lost lands and giants and metaphysical teachings. So that, to me, is what's interesting as well. <laughs> well said. Wow. So many directions to go. But yeah, science operating as an atheistic cult seems to be a thread I can't get away from, no matter how off the radar the subject, I think, is going to be. It just keeps coming up, especially over the last uh, couple of years. But I wanted to ask more about the physical characteristics, because this was something that really stuck out to me. And for anyone who isn't sure how much stock to put into the giant thing, there are physical characteristics that make some of these giants different. Not only bigger, but two or even three rows of teeth six fingers and toes, and some of these characteristics, what makes them really interesting is that there are places where we find some 
genetic lineage, perhaps, would be the term, of places where some of these qualities still pop up. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I'll say that one thing I've really dove into is the idea of polydactyly, extra digits, six digits on the fingers and six on the toes, is found all throughout history. The Bible lists the giant of Gath as having six fingers and six toes, 24 digits in all. In Samaria, the Summa Ibzu in 2800 BC is the first one to talk about this idea of extra digits and the fact that it is always associated with the divine or malevolent activity. So it's considered a supernatural trait. And I've searched the globe and have found giant hands and feet with six fingers and toes and rock art and petroglyphs around the world, all around the United States in the Four Corners region, isolated Pacific Islands, Australia, Holy Land. It's rather remarkable. And you have places like the Four Corners region of the United States where the Pueblo people have a higher incidence of this genetic condition called polydactyly than the rest of the population. You have tribes in Ecuador and villages in Spain where people have this condition of extra digits. So the question is, it's associated with the giants. It's associated with the supernatural. Was there ancient interbreeding? And you bring up genetics. The highest incidence of pituitary gigantism, which is a rare condition when a tumor grows on the pituitary gland of an individual, and they basically grow out of control. Like if you've seen Robert Waldo from Illinois, he was nine foot tall, but he had this disease condition. So the highest incidence of this occurs in the north in Ulster County in Ireland, where the Tuatha de Danin landed. They landed on Iron Mountain in this, this supernatural mist, and they were noted to be extremely tall. They fought with the Fomorians, like Tolkien's mythological battles. And you have this incidence, this occurrence. And you have these accounts of six fingers and toes as well in the British Isles. And like I said, you have massive jaw bones and other things associated. And that's what we look into. Like, there's a genetic condition called beetle bar syndrome. And, you know, basically in the same genetic zip code, you have extra digits and pituitary gigantism. So is this like some kind of genetic rejection by larger individuals? And it is now a part of our genetic code, but it presents as a disease condition. So it's kind of a genetic, interesting mystery that we follow in the book. And to your broader question, yes, the giants had telepathic abilities. They could control weather like many of the Native American shamans. In the United States, they were called the tall ones, these wisdom bringers who showed up after a flood. And you have to wonder if there was higher cranial capacity. There were metaphysical understandings that we really didn't understand ourselves that, you know, in our modern day society. So there's all this kind of mystery surrounding the idea of giants. You also have the double rows of teeth you mentioned as well. I think that's something me and Jim have kind of got obsessed by a couple of years, a few years ago when we were working on our previous book in North America, because we had something like, what, 30, maybe 40 accounts of extra rows of teeth, even a third set of teeth from a seven-foot skeleton in Florida. So that side of it really interests me. I mean, we have the extra digits. We have really thick skulls in some cases. As Jim said, the Adena jaw. But we find this, you know, all these kind of traits in Britain. It's also the robust nature of the skeletons as well. 
is something you know that's been described over and over again in America and in Britain. So we're not talking about like basketball players who are sort of quite slim and very tall. They're actually like robust, well-formed, really powerful kind of physiques. And so that makes it a whole different thing. That isn't pituitary gigantism, for instance. You don't get that kind of thing when you're talking about the types of accounts we're dealing with. But the double rows of teeth thing, we had a lot of debate about that with certain skeptics, but we are pretty convinced that it's a genetic trait of giants. You know, when you go back in time far enough, you find these accounts over and over again of extra teeth, extra rows of teeth. We've even got a few horned skulls just to make it all go a bit crazy in North America. But And that's a known thing that happens as well. Even I think Moses was supposed to have had horns in some accounts as well. And so, you know, also like the double rows of teeth, it's also linked. I remember Robert Temple is a well-known author. He wrote about them and he suggested that they're really connected with what he described as supernatural heroes. And so this actually is the kind of the stories you get in Britain and Ireland are of supernatural heroes. And so I find that particularly interesting because we found several accounts like in Cranbourne Chase and Dorset. Also, I think on the Isle of Lewis or near there, we're finding some accounts, some giant skeletons and normal sized skeletons that have these extra rows of teeth. So it's like a genetic throwback, you know, the last kind of people who kind of had this. And we even spoke, I think, to Shara Bailey, who was a dental anthropologist from New York University, when we were doing the show a few years ago. And she was blown away by all the accounts when, when we showed them to her. And she suggested perhaps. This is something that triggers, you know, as you grow so large, you get into like eight feet tall and so on and so forth. And you're doing that naturally, which is what we believe these giants. It was a natural process of getting to this size through interbreeding with specific kind of other royal class or priestly elites and things like this, that the teeth would actually grow into the space in the mouth. And so you would have these extra rows of teeth. And it would become like this genetic marker, but also it would be a, a sign of being of elite status. And so all these different things, extra rows of teeth, powerful physiques, large jaws are all connected with these giants, but also the supernatural kind of heroes and warriors of these ancient stories. So it all kind of comes together. It's very odd. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And Jim, you had mentioned deliberate and elaborate burial sites. And then one that I had notes on from the book was actually where Hugh lives in Glastonbury. I guess it's the giant of Glastonbury Abbey, buried between two big obelisks with strange inscriptions. There's like a lead cross buried in the middle. And on one side, a nine foot skeleton in an oak coffin and three skeletons buried on the right side. You have a great diagram of it in the book of how this was all positioned and it's quite odd and just breezing through some of my notes. I can't believe how fast this is going. Um, also all four countries of the British Isles have origin stories that are intimately connected to ruling giants. So this is no small thing, even if it's just like mythology or lore, it's, it's there in all four countries of the British Isles. So I mean, that's a pretty big hit, but it seems that quite often these giants were associated with being kings or rulers. What are your thoughts on there being a sort of lineage that still exists in the 
what seems to be a tight-knit ruling class today where many world leaders are still interrelated to each other or other famous figures in history, are they descendants of these giants? And do you think that behind closed doors they know about some of this stuff? Well, we won't talk about Prince Andrew right now. <laughs> <laughs> a little hot to talk um, about him. <laughs> I hear what you're saying. The idea of royal bloodlines is something that you find in ancient times. You find interbreeding brother and sister, husband and wife associated with the gods in Egypt and Peru and other places. And in fact, they found ancient interbreeding associated with a burial at Newgrange recently. You could probably Google it. Brother and sister ancestral relationship, you know, uh, <laughs> at Newgrange or something like that. And you wonder why we view it as like a repugnant behavior, but the ancient peoples seem to keep this interbreeding intact to stay connected to a divine lineage. And you said the founding stories of the British Isles all have giants involved. And it's true. It's rather remarkable. Albion and Albina in England, this idea that giants are interwoven in not only the mythology, but in the priestly elite, the idea of kingship, the landscape itself. Virtually every stone circle and standing stone has some, it's the fairy stone or the giant stone. There's definitely echoes of ancient migrations of supernatural beings and giant people. And I can't get around that. I just, if you were to be dropped off on Earth today and looked around at the megalithic sites, the strange gods that are set in iconography and statues around the world, the mythologies, you just would not be able to make sense of it through the idea of gradualism and uniformitarianism and the way science portrays the past. They seem completely in opposition. So we go towards mythology to help fill in the gaps. And what it tells us is that there were giant beings who showed up and they taught a geomantic science and they built all these structures, you know, Stonehenge and Glastonbury Tor, like you talked about, as an ancient way to enchant the landscape. And Edgar Cayce even talked about that. It's basically these temple sites are tools of enlightenment. When you go to Stonehenge or the King's Chamber in Egypt or Machu Picchu, they really have this effect on the consciousness, on human consciousness, the elevation of the spirit, if you will. That's why it's, to me, it's not just another story, because it's an interesting story, but then you move on in most of these ancient mysteries. But I feel there's a real compelling nature to it that has to do with an ancient system that supported health and prosperity throughout the land. But I'll throw it over to Hugh about the Glastonbury giant, because He's the one who really lived in Glastonbury and knows that story inside and out. Yeah, the Glastonbury giant, that's one of the kind of classic ones. It's one of the oldest ones as well, because we're talking about the late 1100s, so the 12th century, that this was said to have been found. Now, at the time, it was called St. Dunstan's. This was one of the earliest Christian monasteries or abbeys in the country. The whole area was sacred long before. The Christians moved in there. It's a well-known area, you know, in tradition, it's Avalon, part of the Arthurian mythos and so forth. But in the late 1100s, there was a whole process of discovery and revelation with these monks, linked also with, I think, King Henry VII or VI at the time, 
and there was apparently this story that was being kept by the royal family about King Arthur being buried in Glastonbury beneath these two pyramids or next to in between these two pyramids and through an, a process of divination and revelation they found this what they believed was a spot they dug into it and they found these kind of pillars which are like pyramids with all these strange engravings on and like you said halfway down about seven or eight feet down they found this lead cross which in latin read here lies interred the burial of king arthur and so on and so forth mm. which they believed that might have actually been a some people suggest that might have been a hoax placed there by the monks to attract pilgrims, i.e. tourists who would, you know, donate to the cause. But as they dug further down, they found this, about 16 feet down, they found this huge oak coffin made out of a solid trunk of oak with two burials in it, a male and possibly a female. But the male was said to be over nine feet tall and something like the eye socket was so big you could pass your fist through it all the, and all these descriptions and all these well-known scholars, writers at the time, even members of parliament and other such things all witnessed this. And there was even a time a couple of decades later where this big ceremony took place and the royal family were involved and they actually moved the nine foot skeleton burial from one spot to another spot within the abbey itself. And you can actually see the sign the two signs of where it was discovered and where it was finally buried actually in the Abbey today. And yet they don't mention anything about a nine foot skeleton being unearthed. But what's interesting is, is that this was reported on for the next 200 years and verified over and over again by people who witnessed it. And yet it's not really talked about. It's not in the kind of classic Glastonbury mythos that people write about today and discuss today. So, but this is also the area of a tribe of giants called the Kangik Giants. This was written about in the 1600s by a gentleman called Reverend Robert Gay, who was from Somerset. He was a bit of an anarchist, but also he was, I think, a pastor at the time, and he was like involved in his church and all this kind of stuff. But he wrote this book called A Fool's Bolt Soon Shot at Stonehenge. And it was like a sarcastic look at all the revelations that were coming out about Stonehenge that William Stukeley and John Aubrey had been writing about around that time. And he wrote about this tribe of giants called the Kanga Giants, and it was part of this mythos that he picked up from from the area. They were from Somerset, and some people say that they might have been connected. They might have been one. One of them might have ended up beneath the ground at the Abbey. And also, they're very strongly connected with Stonehenge. They were actually said to have built Stonehenge after they defeated an incoming tribe coming in from the east. They went towards the east to the borders of Somerset into Wiltshire, and built it as a trophy of their victory. And so you've got all these kind of strange connections kind of merging once again. But yeah, but the Glastonbury giant is a absolutely fascinating story. I mean, where the bones are now, we just don't know, but possibly they're still buried in the Abbey. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that seems to be the case in a lot of these stories is that we don't know where the bones are anymore, even though there's so many stories and let's get into it. The cover-up aspect, pretty much one of the most provocative things I always want to go for is why don't we have more information about this? What is going on with the cover-ups in so many different areas? But everybody knows that when it comes to giants, the Smithsonian is involved to a degree. They receive these remains, then they never seem to surface again. 
But to what depths does this cover-up go? Are there other organizations involved when it comes to the giants of the British Isles? What's going on with the pre-Smithsonian remains that should be out there? You actually have a great image of the Queen looking at a giant skeleton in a display case, so maybe she knows a little something about it. But what would you say about the cover-up and, and why we just can't seem to penetrate this stuff. I mean, obviously you guys are, but the smoking gun, it's got to be out there somewhere. Somebody's got it. What would you say about the cover-up aspect here? Yeah, I'd say that I'll talk about what I know, which is that the Smithsonian scientists unearthed, you know, close to 20 skeletons in the late 1800s, seven foot, eight foot tall, massive jaw bones, one in 1873, Thomas Perrin in Illinois found and reported a 36-inch circumference skull and many other giant skulls, although those crumbled to dust in several of the accounts, not only in the Smithsonian literature, but in other academic sources and town and county histories, crumbled to dust as well, which would account for some loss of evidence. But the Smithsonian had a rather racist and zealous head of anthropology, Dr. Hrdlicka, from about 1900 to about 1940. And he never acknowledged those finds. In 1933, he said, you know, giants are no more. He wrote this article where he basically said these finds are wishful thinking and misidentification and, and hoaxes and stuff like that. So, you know, it was a move away from more mythological ideas in science. Science and religion had a great war, if you will, in the 1800s. And for good reason, science moved away from some religious ideas. But I like to think both parties have some things right and some things wrong. So I don't extend a massive cut. You know, I work with professional anthropologists because I discuss these things and I, I like to get both sides of the story. And institutions, I don't trust as far as you could throw them. A cabal of individual academics covering things up, I don't really buy. But like I said, there's kind of a paradigm that views these ideas as kind of fringe or mythological. So there's not a lot of reason to delve into these subjects. You get into ideas that are frowned upon in academic circles. And I just feel like science is slow to react. But, you know, things are moving in the right direction with new finds and, and new science. I wish I had a better answer, quite frankly, because when you read through all the evidence, it's quite astonishing. You find bones that are on display, credible people, measurements of stationary objects that are absolutely enormous. And, you know, Hugh and I can go to Baalbek, Lebanon, and show you the Trilithon, and we can show you all kinds of weird beings and inexplicable evidence around the planet, evidence of cataclysm and other things, and, and places like Gobekli Tepe that are so ancient that it upends history. But I have not seen and DNA tested the 12-foot skeleton as of yet. <laughs> and I'll just say it's kind of frustrating in that regard, but we like just to lay out the case and let people decide for themselves. Right, right. And I, I agree with what you said. It is in the institutions and the education. It does enough to sort out the serious professionals from the rogue scholars, because you can't get your professional archaeology merit badge if you talk about this kind of stuff. And yes, it's great that that's breaking down a little bit, but that is what has kept the secrets, uh, in in my opinion. But Hugh, what were you going to say? Yeah, well, no, I, I yeah, agree with Jim. And 
in Britain, it's actually quite similar. I mean, it's quite a similar story, but it goes back quite a bit further, you know, and things happening at different times. We're really talking about the switch over from like a pagan culture going into a Christian culture. So we're talking like from 500 AD going all the way up to like, we're talking the 16, 1700. So, you know, one and a half thousand years of kind of people holding on to these old traditions because these kind of stories of the giants, you know, like we've got Jack the Giant Killer, which we know has been proven scientifically through, you know, quite serious scholarly research to be 5,000 years old at least. So that suggests many of these other giant myths and stories and creation myths are this kind of age. And so we're not just talking about pagan times, we're talking about Neolithic times, times of the megaliths, times of the kind of megalithic tombs, stone circles and other such things. And there's a gradual kind of push by the church to remove anything pagan, like building over pagan megalithic sites, put churches on them. So they're all kind of now on these ley lines and things like this. And so when they were finding these skeletons and bones, it was all really connected with this pagan story, you know, and so they, they kind of would brush them under the carpet. And then we know that right up until, you know, the 1800s and the early 1900s, there was a whole movement of especially pushing into Wales, where many of the traditions held strong, even their old Welsh language, which was the old British language, you know, many hundreds or thousands of years ago. And they were pushing in there. They were trying to deny their history. Like, because it was in there, they were taught in history that Brutus did come over. He did defeat Gog and Magog and the giants. He did found London. He did have Gog and Magog as the protector of London and so forth. This was actually history up until the early 1900s. But this got changed and pushed back. And all this kind of new emerging science and these Christian kind of new testament dogma was brought in to replace that so we lost a lot of what was part of our kind of culture it was part of our consciousness it was part of our memory system our oral tradition fortunately a lot of this was recorded before this happened before it all got lost and there's a few scholars i can mention like chris grooms um, john reese davis who back in the, he was actually collecting stories in the 1500s in wales and documenting giant skeletons at the same time. And he was talking about this problem as it was happening. And so there's like, you know, like, like Jim said, it's not really a big conspiracy. It's just a series of like agendas, religion, changes in thoughts about what science is and things like this, which just unfortunately pushed the whole giant story under the carpet and it pushed it away and kind of put it into this denial part of reality. <laughs> and so we're contending with that. So there's a lot more to it than meets the eye, but there are so many accounts that we've come across that are recorded very long time ago. And they were so matter of fact, the way they were measured and put out into the public domain that, you know, there's certainly a reality to this, which is just absolutely kind of mind blowing when you start looking into it. Mm -hmm. well, that's a pretty good breakdown. Maybe it is less conspiracy and more a series of unfortunate events, but it is always hard to tell Who's motivated to do what when we're looking at time depths that we're talking about? And I would suspect that where the cover-up is concerned, I would think maybe the Royal Society plays its usual part somewhere in there. But it is a tangled web, and I'm glad that you guys are resurrecting a lot of this stuff. And I can't get through this first hour without diving deeper into the magic stuff. 
we had some passing references to magic and geomancy, but I mean, it gets pretty deep. According to the book, not only were these giants oftentimes kings and queens, but you say, quote, they were often master geomancers, surveyors, architects, and astronomers who ruled from their mountaintop fortresses. And then there's this other paragraph where you say, a wealth of folklore from England, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland talk about sophisticated cultures of giants with supernatural powers and advanced technology who had control over thunder and lightning as witnessed when their tombs were disturbed by later generations. And I guess in an open-ended sense, what more can you guys say about the range of magical abilities that are talked about, or maybe we call it high science or hidden science, but this is quite interesting. And the control of weather, I mean, that's a real provocative one. That is, yeah, that's the kind of classic sowers of thunder mythos. This is actually brought to our attention by a brilliant author called Anthony Roberts. He wrote a book called Sowers of Thunder back in 1970. He was a Glastonbury resident. And he was part of the whole Earth Mysteries movement. But he did a lot of research into these giants and realized that there was this geomantic element to it. You know? And also he found a, you know, a handful of accounts where there were stories of people when they disturbed the graves of giants in, over the, in the last few hundred years, these thousands of years old burials, that giant storms and thunder and lightning would occur immediately. And it would terrify the desecrator and they would run off. And so we looked into that in more detail and we thought, hang on a sec, because these not only, I mean, Jim can talk about this in a moment, but not only do we have these kind of high kings and queens and rulers who had these magical powers like we find in Ireland, we find with the children of Doan in Wales and so on and so forth, but they actually had spells placed over their burials. And so when people in relatively modern times, last few hundred years would dig them up, it would literally cause a storm like immediately as soon as they started digging and sometimes earthquakes sometimes such delusion rain that it would just almost drown the people. It would terrify them. And we're not just talking one or two accounts. We've got something like 40 accounts or something in the historical record. And most of these are giants' graves. But we also even have the same story at Silbury Hill. We have the same story at Stanton Drew Triple Stone Circles, where lightning formed into like a spiral into the center of the circle. And this was documented by a doctor you know, back in, I think, the 17 or late 1700s. And so what is going on here? So there's two things we looked into in the book. One of them was the fact that they were just master magicians and sorcerers, and this was part of their lineage. It was part of their magical lineage. And as Jim will talk about in a second, we know that there because the myths and the stories, the creation stories of Ireland, and Wales, and even Scotland as well, talk about these high-level kind of magicians who not only do the magic they were masters of technology as well and had different types of technology and weapons and things like this but the other angle we looked at was the fact that it might be a kind of earth energy science and this is something we found to be the case it could be the case because if you build something in a specific way and you're working with the earth energies in a very specific way and constructing with different layers you get like this orgone effect you get like this energetic effect and you build it on high points in the landscape to attract lightning and things like this. So they could have had this kind of scientific understanding of placing their burials in very specific places that would manipulate the environment around them. You know, they were like what were called thunderstorm capacitors. 
but they would build up charge and whenever it was interfered with or changed in any way it would just trigger the weather to change and so you know we look into that in more detail i can't go into all the specifics right now but we were kind of blown away by this but we think that these giants many of them at least this is what you know we discovered that they were literally like magicians they were master sorcerers they had control of the elements they were probably telekinetic they probably had control of people's minds in the case of merlin it seemed like he could levitate stones just by using magic or using his mind but when you're finding actual historical accounts of people having these direct experiences of these storms and thunder and lightning occurring as soon as they start digging a grave you have to take note that these were very powerful individuals who were buried there hmm. damn well jim you got anything to add on the the magic front i can't get enough of magic talk <laughs> absolutely that was a pretty good summation and when you read through the book and you read the different chapters of the geomancy of the giants and the souls of thunder, you can see that there's a, an intelligent science behind what we're talking about, that the way you put in acupuncture needles in the human body to modulate the energy systems, the same thing occurs on Earth. And you get into ideas of telluric energy and ley lines, the Earth being a living being, things that are understood now by many. And that just make logical sense as well. You don't have to be scientific to understand these concepts. But there's this geomantic science clearly that's at work. This isn't wishful thinking. And like he was saying, use specific stones. You divine the right location. And, you know, if you ever deal with somebody who has supernatural abilities or psychic abilities, I deal with a lot of clairvoyants and spiritual masters. And they just come from a different place. They have a different set of abilities. And you realize that. This isn't a fairy tale, that there is something to this. Even ideas like levitation or high magic is just a form of technology that is not really understood these days because the ancient ones were, you know, the scientists were spiritual masters as well. They were initiated in mystery schools like Plato and Pythagoras. And once again, you have a left brain, male dominated academia that is oriented towards abusive rationalistic thinking exclusion of more metaphysical ideas and sources and i just think we are left interpreting shadows on a on a cave wall rather than understanding the heart of the matter you know so to turn back to these ideas i, I think it is clear that these races of beings showed up and if you look at all the traditions the twatha de danin these huge and magical beings who show up they're associated with the building of new grange they show up in Northern Ireland. They are, you know, masters of the elements. And you have the same stories in Native American tribes. You have the U.S. Army outlawed the Sioux Ghost Dance, for instance. And there's a book called Weather Shamanism that talks about Native American shamans' ability to control the weather and how it terrified the U.S. Army. And they outlawed these ideas. So our culture is like burnt out and bankrupt and has very little connection to the divine or the supernatural. But the ancient indigenous cultures in this lost golden age had this level of connection that would be portrayed as supernatural or of advanced technology to less evolved people in the past. So to bring it all together, I think, you know, you have these ideas associated with the lost world. And a lot of the mythology is from Edgar Cayce to the traditions 
throughout the British Isles is there was a lost continent, lost islands. You could talk about Atlantis. And I know that subject's off-putting to some people, but I really myself believe in Edgar Cayce and Plato's Atlantis. It makes a lot of sense as far as shared traditions of a mother culture around the world. We now know that there was a cataclysmic event that occurred right at the sinking of Plato's Atlantis about 12,800 years ago called the Younger Dryas Impact event. So, you know, it all comes together by virtue of looking at the traditions. And what they state is eerily specific and ubiquitous. And it makes sense when you tie all the information together. And once again, not to disparage academia, but it's like when you go to the doctor, it's good that he can set your compound fracture, but he's not going to look at alternative ideas. You know what I mean? Like these things take a long time to take hold. And there's just the ideas of magical worlds and supernatural beings is something that is not embraced by academia. So the ideas are marginalized and considered farcical, which I completely disagree with. Yeah, well said. It does seem to me the more interviews I do that almost every slice of science, if you were to break up the pie into biology, geography, all the different aspects, physics, there's always some kind of esoteric science that we seem to have lost. Ether, orgone, alchemy, frequency-based stuff, cymatics, stone levitation, psi abilities, and these weird correspondences across landscapes and layers of reality, like multiple dimensions and the human body, as you pointed out, it goes quite deep. And there's a lot of stuff that we need to pull out of the past, so to speak. But man, just so interesting. And Dr. Greg Little definitely broke down Edgar Casey's Atlantis in a previous interview. And I really, really enjoyed that one. It's kind of weird how we hear like a name like Edgar Casey, or we hear Stonehenge, we hear it so much that we forget how interesting the real details are of these things. And to have it broken down at length is always a great pleasure of mine. Before we really wrap this up, we should spend a little more time on Stonehenge. It is in the title of your book. I now know the original name of Stonehenge translates to the Giant's Dance. And you mentioned the story of how it got there relates to the Giants building it to celebrate a great battle, but I think Stonehenge is one of these things. We hear about it so often, we maybe forget the details of why it is so interesting, and the math and all the things about it. Obviously, in recent years, it seems as if the complex has gotten even bigger with things that are buried underneath, but... Before we really wrap this up, let me uh, ask you about Stonehenge, whoever wants to take it, but remind people of why this is such a special place. Yeah, I'll just quickly say, because he lives a half a mile from Stonehenge, so he'll talk all about it. I just want to say that one point I wanted to hit is that giant effigies have been paraded around London and Salisbury, which is near Stonehenge, or on display for long periods of time as part of this idea of giants being embedded in the consciousness of the landscape. Now, you know, why is that part of the traditions? Why are Gog and Magog, you know, noted to be these great rulers and guardians of Britain? And I would say that it's a matter of being embedded in the collective unconscious. It's not just like a fairy tale. 
there's a historical reality that is being remembered through these traditions. And I'll kick it to Hugh, and that's exactly what's going on at Stonehenge and all the traditions surrounding it. It's like some trickster is giving clues to figure out the reality of the situation. Like it was once called the Giant's Dance, the original name, the original picture is a tapestry from the 12th century with King Ambrosius, Merlin, and a giant building Stonehenge. Those are the clues that we piece together in the book. Stonehenge, yeah, I do live quite close to it, actually, yeah. Obviously, it's one of the most impressive ancient sites on the planet. It's a unique stone circle. There's nothing like it in Britain. We've got a thousand stone circles in Britain. I've written an entire book about stone circles. But this one has lintels, so you've got these sort of stones on top. You've got carved stones. You've got what looks like scoop marks in the stones as well, which is really bizarre. It's like they've softened the stone. This is actually a tradition of the Kangik giants, which we go into in the book, that they were able to do this, much like the Cyclops in Greece were able to do that as well. But we have actual accounts of giants, not just the 24-foot giant effigy Jim was talking about, that they parade around Salisbury since the 1400s, I might add. But also in 1719, just south of Stonehenge, near Salisbury, in a mound called the Giant's Grave, they found a nine-foot-four skeleton, and this was reported in two different accounts we've managed to uncover. If we go back even further, to 1508, we have Sir Thomas Elliot, who was a renowned scholar, writer. He was knighted. He was an MP for Cambridge. He wrote the Dictionary of All Books, as well as also a gentleman called John Leland, who wrote, you know, Britannica books. We have other scholars and researchers at the time who witnessed not a nine foot four skeleton but a 14 foot 10 inch skeleton at a place called ivy church priory which again is just south of stonehenge near salisbury and so this was reported on that they found in the coffin in the kind of it was like a large kind of oak kind of coffin a huge great thing obviously and it had this strange book with this inscription on it which no one could read which crumbled to dust when it was uncovered but they also found this giant metal tin and lead kind of tabletop lid thing with the same kind of inscriptions all over it. And people have always wondered where the hell that went. It's never been found. No one knows what happened to it. But it was described in detail by jo Thomas Elliot and John Leland at the time, respected scholars in the 1500s. And so that is really intriguing that in 1508 we have this discovery. But even before that, in the 1470s, as Jim said, a giant started to be paraded around Salisbury, and he was like this pagan giant. It was always around the time of the summer solstice, St. John the Baptist Day, which is a few days after. And so it was clearly a reference to the giants and Stonehenge, especially as the name, the original name is the Giant's Dance. And we always wondered, well, you know, what's going on with this? And they changed the name of the giant they paraded around to St. Christopher. Now, we always question, why would they change it? Was it just a Christian kind of shift? Actually, St. Christopher himself was a Canaanite giant who came from the Bible lands, who carried Jesus famously on his shoulder across a river when Jesus was a baby. And he wanted to like serve the greatest king rather than be a commander in a Canaanite army. And he was said to be between 12 or 18 feet tall. So what is a giant from the Bible lands, a Canaanite warrior, have this connection with this giant paraded around the nearest town to Stonehenge. Then you've got the Kangik giants, and the CAN is like Canaanite Kangik, it's the same principle. Robert Gay, in his book from 1666, claimed that there was a direct connection 
between these names and they follow the same principles of the Canaanites and that the Kanjic giants themselves were connected with the Bible lands. And so we have all these odd connections. And then you start, I mean, I can go on and on here, but I'll just quickly summarize this. But you start looking at the measurement systems, the type of geometry, the placement in the landscape compared to other sites. A Stonehenge is like, it's like an international site. It's got measurements from Egypt. It's got measurements from Sumeria. It's got British measurements. It's got other measurements from different parts of the ancient world. It's got specific geometries and orientations, which we find in other countries as well. And so you have to kind of question what is going on here. Is there something that's been completely eradicated from our history books, but was only kept and held within these secret societies who created this and paraded this giant around it was their way of remembering and maintaining this tradition because it was a secret society that this guild of tailors who created this giant kind of pageant in Salisbury so I mean I'm trying to summarize to make me too much in too short amount of time but <laughs> there are strong connections not just with Stonehenge we find similar things in different parts of the country hundreds of years thousands of years of these pageants of parading giants around we even have it in London with Gog Magog Gog and Magog are paraded around on the Lord Mayor's show every year even today that's been going on for hundreds of years so there's just this thing that's like almost trapped in our consciousness about this founding story, these creation myths linking with giants and ancient Britain. Mm. Yeah, really great summary. It's so true. There's a lot of cultures that still parade around some big puppet of a giant. It's like, what's that about? But I definitely have never heard about Jesus riding on the shoulders of a giant. I've heard enough biblical stuff for probably five lifetimes. That's never come up. So I like it. And I was in London once and I wanted to see Stonehenge, but my buddy Gordon suggested that we go to Avebury instead because there's less tourists. Maybe it was even closer. It was quite impressive. I was a bit distracted by trying not to track sheep shit back into his car, but a uh, very impressive place. And they're really all over the British Isles. And man, just before I let you go, something I like to ask guests who are explorers and focus on a wide range of ancient mysteries is. If time, money, and access weren't an issue, where would you guys explore to try to uncover the biggest lost mystery, giants or otherwise, biggest bang for the buck? Uh, whoever wants to go first, feel free. I'll jump in first here, Jim. Well, if it's money is no object, then there's a couple of places. One of them is Namadol mm. in Micronesia. I'd love to get out there because we have the amazing megalithic temple of Namadol, maybe these basalt columns. But also there's really interesting giant discoveries and myths of these like flying shaman giants who can levitate stones and things like this. Plus it's beautiful weather and, you know, it's like stunning scenery and things like that. And also, on you know, the opposite side of like the weather spectrum is Antarctica and Patagonia. Now, that area down there is absolutely fascinating because I, right up until recently, up in, like I said earlier, Frederick Cook in 1901, we have this absolutely mind-blowing accounts of direct connections, meetings with these giants. But also there's all these sacred sites that no one really knows about, even on Antarctica as well. And like, you know, there's something to be found down there. It's not being looked at. It's being kind of pretty much suppressed, in my opinion. So I'd love to get a trip down there. 
Yeah, that's an easy one for me. Um, <laughs> excavate under the front of the Sphinx. Because in order to prove the case, you need evidence that can be carbon dated, contemporaneous artifacts, records. You know, right now, the official date of the building of the Giza complex is about 2650 BC. Casey specifically states that between 490 and 10,390 BC was the actual construction date over a hundred year period of the Great Pyramid. And Rata and Hermes, Thoth, are the architects and builders of it. And in order to prove that case, and it's just not the Casey material, I believe that the Assyrian and the Sphinx Temple are much older because I, I have engineering experience. I'm a stonemason. There are two different construction techniques at work in Egypt, just like you find in the Inca world and in Pumapunku and Cusco and other places. So I would say in order to prove the case, you have to excavate and find if there is a lost hall of records under the Sphinx and the Giza Plateau. Also, about three quarters up in the Great Pyramid, Japanese scientists with Muon technology have found a void that's like 30 meters wide. And that I would like to investigate as well, or see scientists investigate. And we'll see how it goes. I really, you know, I'd love to do a show, Search for the Lost Hall of Records. I think people would love that idea. Anytime they did specials in Egypt with Zawi Hawass or whatever, you know, they get huge ratings. And I understand the reluctance of Egyptologists, especially Egyptians themselves, because they view these ideas, you know, through a nationalistic lens where the interlopers are trying to steal our history and all that. But to me, this isn't a racist argument. Basically, as we told you, the gods and the giants and the shining ones are associated with Twatha Data and with Newgrange and other sites, just like they're attached to Pumapunku or Teotihuacan or these other sites around the world. So it's not like an ancient or it's not a racist argument. It says, who are the gods that showed up in antiquity? So long story short, I think that's where the rubber meets the road, is to find evidence of further antiquity on the Giza Plateau. Yes, both really great answers. Nan Madal is quite intriguing with the curse and everything. And Jim, I figured you were going to say the paw of the Sphinx. And I guess... I would think that it's probably been explored in secret, but we're never going to know about it. It's such a specific location. How could they not have gotten in there? But regardless, it's definitely an intriguing mystery. And man, this has just been so much fun. Talk to the people about the other things you have going on in terms of following up on your work, the shows you're involved with, upcoming projects, links, because I'm sure people are going to want to follow up in some regard, and your work ethic certainly puts mine to shame, but what are you going to do? Tell people about that follow-up material. Sure. In the pipeline, me and Jim are going to be eventually be doing a worldwide book. We've got so much cracking data. It's quite remarkable. and. Personally, I've got my big conference in Glastonbury on the 7th and 8th of May. We run Megalithomania, my company. We run a bunch of tours. We're going out to like, we do a tour around Stonehenge in England in July, Orkney in August. We're doing a big Gebekli Tepe tour and a few other bits and bobs. And yeah, we kind of, it's one of the other areas I'm researching now is with my partner JJ Ainsworth as well, is Gebekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe, which is a whole other story, which 
I've just published a video tonight about that actually up on the Megalithomania UK YouTube channel because the stuff that's coming out of there is insane. It's remarkable. And I think that's going to open up this whole other world because these the dating of what's being found out in that part of the world is matching this whole Atlantean time. It's like 9,600 BC. This is exactly the same kind of dates we have for the kind of you know, cases idea of what Atlantis was. But this is the dates of Gobekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe. So, yeah, so there's, I mean, my, myself and Jim, we were involved in a few TV shows. We're both involved in Ancient Aliens. I've got, I think there's a few more episodes of this season coming out. The Unexplained with William Shatner. That's great fun doing that. I also work with Gaia TV on Ancient Civilizations. And, yeah, there's a whole, people can just, you know, check out the megalithomania.co.uk website. Everything's up on there. That's the best clearinghouse for, who has a section of all my videos and different talks. I'm setting up a website. I have the tech skills of an Amish preacher, I like to say. But I'm setting up a website so I can put my videos. And as you know, Greg, from watching my stuff, I'm into metaphysical ideas. And I think that's what's most interesting. It's kind of like there's such a burgeoning population on Earth of spiritual but not religious people now that don't subscribe to any dogmatic ideas. And it's kind of like the my effort, I studied with the spiritual teacher for like 25 years and transcribe all the sessions with my brother and Hughes met him as well. And it's more like, how do you reach something larger through meditation or undoing of misperceptions? I just like to share ideas from spiritual masters that help people in their day-to-day -day lives to help them find peace and to deal with mental illness and things like that. So I'm pro-psilocybin, I'm pro alternative protocols for mental health disorders and things like that. And, you know, if you watch my videos, I, I share a lot of that kind of information. And so as far as what I'm doing, and like Hugh said, you know, we'll be on William Shatner's show and we show up on Ancient Aliens. And <laughs> and I hope to do a show excavating in front of the Sphinx at some point. <laughs> we'll see if uh, History Channel bites on that. But uh, that's kind of my story right now. Right on. What a life, Jacks of many trades, and you guys seriously crushed it. I can't wait to put this one out. Big thanks to the good doctor, the Greg Superior, as I like to say, for linking us up. I really enjoyed the book. It belongs in the library of anyone that wants to have a high-level giant section, and <laughs> you each have enough work on your own to fill up several solid interviews, so I hope we stay in touch, but it's been a pleasure. Keep up the great work and take care. Thanks, Greg. You too. Great interview. Yeah, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. It's really cool. And boom goes the dynamite. Double your pleasure. Double your fun. Hugh and Jim. Jim and Hugh really bringing it today. I loved it. I love the content. I love the audio quality. We got a winner here. I appreciate Dr. Little recommending THC to his colleagues. This is how we get the best interviews sometimes. Quality endorsements are important, and I appreciate that very much from him. The show is only as good as the guests I can get, and only grows as big as the reach of those who recommend it, by the way. But we got giants, we got geomancy, and we got a lot of interesting tangents along the way. Who knows where the line between ancient Akashic memory and myth should be drawn, if anywhere? But the evidence is in, there are too many giant stories to write off, 
I think anyone who's familiar with all the shows in the archive would already say that about America, but now we got them on the other side of the pond, and it just goes to strengthen the case. And probably my favorite part was weather effects tied to these stone circles and tombs. Also, the idea that UFOs and paranormal encounters and orbs are all direct results of these old shamanic portal places, that's something that's gaining more and more steam, and I'm into it. I just finished Gordon's new book, Animistic, which will be the next thing we talk about here, and it hits on that theme too. Dr. Greg Little himself has a new book coming out this summer, hopefully one we're going to talk about, that looks like it's also going to be adding to that stack. But I like these megalomaniacs quite a bit. I'm glad they had a lot of fun underground and cave stories in the book that we could pull out. And I hope we're able to make it happen again down the line. They both have a lot of overlapping interest with the things that we like around here. I think I have one from my notes that we didn't mention. Although I think they did mention the term scrapbook, but we didn't get into it. Unless there are others, I think this is a reference to the third Manx scrapbook by W.W. Gill, a private publication from 1938 that didn't come to light until 1963, and listen to this. They say it references the Venodiri, a hairy supernatural creature that is said to be a large elemental being. Sounds a lot like what some people think Bigfoot is. But also in the scrapbook is this account that originally came from a book called The Undersea Giants. I'm going to have to check that out. And it gives a story about a miner from Laxey who got lost in mining tunnels. While trying to find his way out, he came to a great room hollowed in the rock with tables and chairs in it, all of stone. The light in the room was yellowish and seemed to come from above. Six great, powerful men in queer, rough clothes were sitting there and staring at him. He asked them, in Manx, to direct him to the upper world. They spoke amongst themselves in a language he could not understand, and then one turned to him and told him that he was under Laxey Bay. Quote, This is the castle of the giants that used to be living in Laxey, and you are the first man that ever found his way down here. They said they were just putting in the time until the island would be fit for heroes to live again, and they had been waiting there hundreds of years. Then one of them gave him a knock on the head, and he didn't know anything until he found himself outside the big door. He tried again to find the area. He had seen these giants, but failed. Well, I like it. Another story that kind of sounds like fallen angels or watchers kind of stuck in the earth waiting for a time when they can reemerge. Another common theme we hear with these kinds of stories is that a person cannot find the place again, speaking to a metaphysical quality. Good stuff. I checked my outline for other things that I didn't bring up because this was just so chock full of material, and I don't think I asked about the lizard people. I might have, but my notes say that I didn't, so I'll read it to you guys here. Because you can bet that if a book has a reference to lizard people, I'm going to have to highlight that in an interview. But they write, A strange story about the origins of the Cornish giants discussed a race of inferior people who went about on all fours and spoke in a strange tongue. These were called the lizard people. A large ship was one day wrecked off the coast and some giant survivors settled amongst the lizard people gradually interbreeding with them over the generations. Their offspring became renowned in the area, being very tall, intelligent, and superior in many ways. 
It is said that in this area of Cornwall, local residents still often reach over six feet tall. Well, that's a hell of a story. Again, the theme of watchers, fallen angels, giants breeding with people, in this case, some kind of primitive lizard person. I don't know. The world is a weird place, but I do love hearing about it. But their book is just full of stories like this, so many things that we couldn't fit into a two-hour interview, and I'm anxious to read their book about North American giants, because I'm sure it's just as dense. So good show today. Of course, if you liked the free first hour, you're missing half the interview. Just become a member. You know you like what I do. Why not get the full episodes? Eight bucks. Eight dollars is worth less every day, but you can still get THC+. How about that? But in this one, we added a lot more to the stack. We got into several other tales of giants living underground and in caves, astrological alignments, the origins of the giants, metaphysical secrets of the ancients, my favorite section, ancient CRISPR creations of the Atlantean geneticists. Maybe that's where those lizard people came from. The Giant's Cave in Eden Hall. The Catalina Giants. And land missing from modern maps like High Brazil Island. You know I love land missing from old maps. It's a very provocative thing to get into, and they touch on it. Solid stuff, and don't forget the standard seven-day free trial that we got going on now, so hop on in and check it out. In higher side news, there's not a ton to report. We're still playing with the formatting of the Netflix-style display on the landing page of the website. We found a way to use the full images, which is great. I think we can make the boxes a bit smaller and try to fit more on screen, but that's coming up. We built out a better account management page, and the new, more integrated forum feels like a solid improvement. I guess I would say that I could use a few more forum moderators. We just need a small team of people that have some experience doing this kind of thing, that want to primarily just help keep threads and categories organized for the sake of overall readability. And of course, police the occasional use of slurs and threats and inappropriate stuff. And look, I give a very long leash for that kind of thing, but of course some people can't help themselves, and I can't be there to keep an eye on everyone. So if you have forum moderation experience and you like doing that kind of thing, shoot me an email at thehiresidechats at gmail.com, and we can do a free plus membership for helping me out for as long as you want to do it. I'm not going to be able to respond to every email I get on this, I can tell you that now, so please show me where you've done this before, be clear and concise, and it'll help make it easier for me. And I appreciate you in advance. As for meetups on the calendar, well, today, March 6th, there is the L.A. Picnic Meetup at the L.A. State Historic Park. I really wanted to make it to this one, but here I am trying to get a new show up, and I just don't see myself driving up to L.A. and back today. I am sorry. But also today, we have the Cabin Boys Brewery meetup in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And then next week, March 11th, there is another New York City one happening at Cafe 28. Check the calendar for details and times and to RSVP so the organizer knows how many people to expect. But those are the next three. Add your own events if you want to meet other THC fans in your area and build the local relationships that we are going to need for the next few years. Tell your favorite podcast hosts to hop over and make joint events. 
The more the merrier, I say. The only real rule is that we are not promoting paid events. These are free hangouts, but other podcasts and their audiences are welcome too. Hiresidemeetups.com to make it happen. And that's about it. I really enjoyed Jim and Hugh's work, and it was a pleasure to talk to them. I hope you enjoyed it as well. The book is worth it if you're into giants and geomancy and all the rest of it. But that's it for me. I've done my part. Your move, giant reality concealers, geomantic art erasers, and magical megalithic sight specialness suppressors. Your fucking The truth has been hidden from me. the TV and obey Take some more pills when you're blue Or we'll break you out of the spell that you're in Together we will make it through Believe it or not The truth is out there For people who have the eyes to see My favorite show That is another show complete. Remember, as much as you enjoyed this, which is just the free first hour, I hope you'll become a Plus member to hear the full two-hour interviews. You also can engage with other Plus members in the comments and the forums, and you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions I get, which is where can I find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show? Well, they are free downloads for Plus members too. 
And without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. We can fit so much more into a two-hour interview, and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. How could it not the way things are going? But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com, where new first-time subscribers always get a free seven-day trial because I'm just that confident. There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check mailed to the P.O. Box. And I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves, and I hope you'll join Plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC Plus will work with their podcast app, and the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high-level app recommendations for whatever phone you use, and the website is made for mobile, too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. Informative, entertaining, and action-packed. It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. Thank you for spending some time with me and cheers to a better tomorrow.